Thanks for joining us today. Our church exists to give everyone, everywhere, every reason to know Jesus. You can learn more by connecting with us on Facebook at Journey Fellowship Denton. Thanks again for joining us and enjoy today's message. Luke chapter 24. As I opened last week, I wanted to uh, continue that because we're talking about that everything must be fulfilled. Luke chapter 24, let me just give you a series text here. In verse 44, it says, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me. These are Jesus' words. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me. In the law of Moses, the prophets, the Psalms. And then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead. On the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things, for I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Within this passage of Scripture, you have the summary of some of the most important events, if not the most important event that has ever occurred in human history. The events that take place as Jesus describes them are events that directly affect yours and my life, and they will continue to affect our lives in the future. What Jesus did and the work that he did, summarized and described, especially in verses 46 and 47, if you want to look there, tell us important truths that every writer in the New Testament completely understood. They realized that the final days and the hours of Jesus' life were the absolute most important hours and, and, and days of Jesus. And you understand this as you begin to look at Scripture and you study thoroughly the accounts of the Gospel writers, Matthew through John, and you recognize how many chapters were actually spent upon those critical moments and events of Jesus' life, and events that affected us in history. Let me just give you an understanding and a summary of those things. In the Gospels, Matthew through John, there are only four chapters of all of those Gospels that deal with the first 30 years of Jesus' life. Only four chapters. There are 85 chapters that deal with the last three and a half years of Jesus' life. Quite a large divergence. Of those 85 chapters, 29 of those chapters and 29 chapters in the Gospels deal with the final week of Jesus' life on earth, and 13 actually deal with the final 24-hour period before Christ's death and burial and resurrection. So you can conclude that the grand point of all of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, even the The epistle writers, Paul and James and Jude and Peter, that the key point, the grand idea was not about Jesus' teachings, it wasn't his miracles, it wasn't his healing power, it was those things were important and they added to the whole story, but the most critical grand idea, the grand point of the life of Jesus was the sacrificial death and his crucifixion on the cross that ended up giving eternal life to people who received him as their Savior. 
That was the crux of the entire Gospels if you bury your study into those Gospels. And what that, that helps me to understand is that God has spent a lot of time developing and revealing His great plan of salvation. I want you to understand something this morning, and that's the title of my message. We have a great salvation this morning. It's great. Is there anybody in this room who is saved and you know that this plan of salvation is great in your life? It is a great plan of salvation. Let me just take a moment, and I want you to take a moment and ask you this question. What consistently brings you joy and satisfaction in your life? What is it? Think for a moment. Think consciously. What brings you joy and satisfaction in your life? Some might say, well, it's my family. We prayed about our family today. It's my children. It's my husband, my wife. That brings me joy. Some might say, they bring me the most pain in life. It's my family. Some might say, well, it's my friendships. It's it's my friends. It's the people that I'm around. It's my boyfriend, my girlfriend, my fiance, my whatever. They bring me the most joy and satisfaction in my life. Others might say, well, my career, my job, my upward mobility, things that are happening. And some might not even say it out loud, but they would say, well, it's my possessions, things that I have, things that I, that I own, the hobbies that I'm a part of, the activities, my vacations, my trips, all of those things. They bring great joy, great satisfaction to our life. But I can just tell you, friends, that every Christian believer, every person, the true answer ought to be this. That the most important, satisfying, joy-filling thing in my life is my relationship with Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. That full salvation that's been provided because it is the hub that the spokes of my life form around. And if the hub was taken away, my life would collapse into oblivion and nothing. Because salvation is such a great thing in our life. But my fear is that there's far too many Christians where salvation is nice, but it's not really necessary. Salvation is great to have, but it's not really necessary. Salvation has become simply an add-on, and it adds a little bit of fulfillment to a life that's well-rounded and well adorned with things of this world. It's not the essential core of many people's lives that sit on church pews and church seats. It's not the core in which life would disintegrate if salvation was lost. And for many people who are in churches today all over this nation, maybe all over this world, if they were honest, they would probably even ask and shrug their shoulders as they said, What's really so great about salvation? What's the big deal? I'm here to answer that question this morning. Everything must be fulfilled, and in doing so, salvation, the great plan of salvation, must be accomplished through God. In Hebrews chapter 2, I want you to look there. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3 says, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? Everybody say, a great salvation. Say it again, a great salvation. This salvation, which was announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard Him. 
God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed among and according to His will. It was all because of Jesus. We sang about Him all morning. Every song mentioned about the powerful name of Jesus. Jesus is the one, the pathway through which we find salvation. And for a moment, I'm just going to step around him and i'm going to talk about not the giver of that salvation and the main figure of salvation but for a moment let me just answer the question and questions about salvation of exactly specifically what is salvation and why is it so important this message sounds so simple because when you come to church you think that most people would even be saved but i think that there's a number of christian believers in our churches today who, even though they may have experienced salvation and they have heard the, the term being saved or I'm saved numerous occasions, they really couldn't explain to you or tell you what that really means. It's just salvation. My friends, what I'm going to explain to you is you have a great salvation. As the writer of Hebrews says, we have a great salvation. How can we ignore such a great salvation? How can we not understand something that's so critical so important, so unique and central to our lives that if it disintegrated, we would have nothing that would satisfy us or bring us joy. Let me answer that question. What is salvation? What does it mean when we say, are you saved? What does that mean? Well, it's often used, and like I said, it can even be experienced, but many people don't even know what that means. Simply put, salvation is this. It's Barney that saved Fred out of the Louisville Lake after their boat turned over. That's what salvation is. You're scratching your head right now and you're saying, what? Simply put, it is when Barney saves Fred out of Louisville Lake because their boat capsized. The biblical understanding is very similar and it's understood this way. In three different terms, three different tenses. Salvation is three tenses. Salvation is we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. So when you understand salvation, you have to understand the entirety of the tenses of what being saved actually means. When I ask you, hey, are you saved in here? There are three parts to that answers to that question. The first part is you have been saved. Barney pulled Fred up after he was going down. He pulled him up so that he could breathe again, to keep him from drowning. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are saved from sin's penalty, which is death. Romans 6.23 says this, For the wages of sin, disobedience, missing the mark, disobeying God, rebelling against God, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God, salvation that comes through Jesus, is eternal life through Jesus Christ. The punishment of sin that you and I all deserve is death, destruction, our lives destroyed because, of, because we are all sinners, as Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned. There's not one person in this room who has a different story to tell. We all start with the same chapter in chapter 1. I am a sinner. 
I am a sinner. There is nothing that I can do to make myself saved. I can do nothing because my works are nothing. They're like filthy, dirty, greasy garage rags. I can't fix my life. I can't satisfy my heart's longing. I am a sinner. You have to know and repent that you are confessing that you are not right with God. Friends, the only person that God cannot save is someone who will not confess that they are in need of salvation. Did you hear me? That's the unpardonable sin. Churches talk about how don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't speak against the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Don't speak against the Holy Spirit. The unpardonable sin, when you understand that verse, is when you refuse the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And the first thing that the Holy Spirit reveals when He comes to you is that you need a Savior. You are a sinner lost without God. That's what it means to be saved. It means that we have been saved. God has promised to judge sin. His promises are true. You can't say that, oh, Jesus has promised to come back unless you take all of His promises. And one of His promises is that He will judge sin. He will set this world right. He will take care of rebellion in the hearts of men and women. Last few days, Shannon has been working in our house, cleaning up. She's cleaned up closets starting with her own. How many of you ladies would just love to go through your entire closet? Let me tell you, it was not a pleasure thing. She went through closets upstairs. She's off on spring break. She was just going to go. She went through bedrooms. She went through our boys' room. My God. Oof. If you have sons, you know what I'm talking about. You walk it. You know why they, you know, used to they have these little it looked like a little, kind of a little torpedo thing, and you would unscrew it a little bit, and there was like these jelly things on a stick. You know what I'm talking about? It's an air freshener. You remember those old air fresheners? It's like jelly on a stick. Some of you remember. Some of you don't. I'd always see one on the top of the toilet tank in my grandma's house, one of those jelly things. You know, and I'd always wanted to know what they tasted like. Anybody else? They smelled so good, I thought, boy, those things would taste really good. That'd leave me a good, I don't need mouthwash. Just put a little bit of that in my mouth. That's, they invented those things for boys' rooms. That so in sections of our house, we have various piles right now. We have a keep pile. It goes in the attic somewhere. So we're not going to clutter the closet anymore. We're just going to fill the attic full. So now it's not overflowing out the door of the closet. The roof's just going to cave in one of these days. That's how it's going to happen. Then we have a going to sell pile. <laughs> going to give away pile. She doesn't even let me do garage sales anymore because somebody walks up. She's got it marked like $5, and they say, hey, I'll give you a dollar. Yeah, sure. And she's like, no, $5. I'm like, what is this? Macy's? We're trying to get rid of this stuff. She's like, you're too easy. And then we have a pile that's garage or or garbage. It's just trash. I didn't know you collected so much trash. And you keep it for long periods of time. Some of you have a house full of trash you don't know you have, but you've been keeping it for years. 
I've been holding on to all that stuff. Well, that trash is destined for the garbage. And the reason why is because it has lost its purpose. It has no purpose anymore. When you fill your life with sin, you diverge from the purpose that God created you. There's only two ways to travel in life, toward the Lord or away from Him. You're either in relationship with Him or you are in rebellion with Him. And when you are in rebellion with God with sin in your life, you have lost your purpose. And God says anything that has no purpose is tossed out. You have been saved. So if you're saved, you have been saved. You have been repurposed. You have been given new life. You have been given a new meaning, a new reason to live, a new reason to to work, a new reason to serve your family and to go to church. You have new life. That's what it means to be saved. You've got a new way of looking at things. When life used to get you down and you used to be depressed and sad about trials and circumstances, now you say, oh, thank God I'm saved. I know this is working out for my good because I have a purpose been saved. But you're not just been saved, you've been you are being saved. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 18 says this, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This isn't Barney pulling Fred up out of the water just to get his nose above so he could breathe in air. This is Barney holding Fred and swimming across Louisville Lake. Swimming across the lake. He is saving Fred. He, it would be one thing if you just pulled old Fred up and let him get a big gulp of air and then old Barney took off swimming. How would that be? So much for Fred. We're saved because the Lord pulled us up out of the, the miry clay, out of the water we were drowning in in our lives. But He didn't just leave us for one big gulp of air when we came to an altar and we confessed our sins. He said, I'm not going to leave you. Here when I'm not going to stay here at the altar. I'm going back to your seat with you. I'm going out into the parking lot with you. I'm going to go to work with you. I'm going home with you. I'm going to live with you because I am going to help you to continue to be saved. You're being saved by the power of God, Paul says. We're being saved from this destructive world around us. The world around you is filled with contaminants, filled with things that would destroy your life. The king or the, the prince of the powers of the air, Satan, has one goal, and that is to destroy you, to steal, to kill. Just like Matthew chapter 14, the story of Peter who steps out of the boat by faith because he wanted to go walk with Jesus. And as he begins to walk with Jesus, he looks around at the world around him and the waves crashing and the wind blowing, and he gets a little bit nervous. He gets his eyes upon the, the water and the waves and the wind, and he starts to sink, and we know exactly what happens. Jesus reaches out in the midst of the trials that Peter's going through, and he saves him because he's walking with them. I want you to know, Jesus didn't snap his fingers, and Peter appeared back in the boat. Jesus walked up to Peter and grabbed him and he walked him back to the boat. 
He's being saved. That's what it means. We are being saved. Your salvation is not a past moment. It wasn't an event back in time where you can say, oh, yeah, the Lord saved me. You are saved, and it is an ongoing process. And I'm thankful that that process continues to go because as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, I know that neither death nor life nor angels or demons nor the present or the future or any power or height or depth or anything in all creation can separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. He's going with you, friends. He's, being, he's saving you right now, right, right here in this room. He is with you. He is, we are being saved from this world. And then finally, we will be saved. It's that third tense. We will be saved. There is coming a time when we will be completely delivered from the presence of sin and the presence of this world. Completely delivered. Completely delivered from the pressures that you face every day. From temptation that you face. From trials, from difficulty. This isn't just old Barney picking Fred up out of the water and swimming halfway across Louisville Lake. This is Barney with his eyes on the horizon looking for the boat that's coming to pick them both up. Barney's got his eyes looking for the boat that's coming. Let me tell you, my friends, we will be saved one of these days because Peter says the coming of the salvation is ready and it will be revealed in the last time. And Paul says this, your, his coming, this salvation is closer than you know. Let me tell you, Jesus is going to come back and we will be totally saved, set free from this world and the sin and the bondages and the, and the pressures and the, and the pains and he's going to deliver us and it will be the full experience of salvation that comes when Jesus returns. Our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. So if you believed back when Sister Summers believed, well, no, it's been over 70 plus years. He's nearer and you're nearer than you've ever been. Jan, you're nearer than you've ever been to experiencing the fullness of The fullness. Brother Terry, you're nearer than you've ever been. You're nearer than you've ever been to experiencing that wonderful, full, total salvation. (laughs) One of the brothers, it's good to see you, Rhonda. Charlie's experienced the full extent of what salvation really is. Full extent. He understood those two. But today, (laughs) in the presence of the Lord, he's experiencing that fullness in even greater measure as Jesus comes and we are changed. a body that corrupts and fails will be reunited and in the twinkling of an eye we will be changed. Hallelujah. So why is salvation so great? We know what it is now. Why is it so great? Let me hurry. Because salvation is a message 
of God's amazing grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. A lot of people confuse grace. They don't understand why salvation is so great. It's because they confuse grace. They think grace is this hang-loose, laid-back flavor of Christianity that encourages people to not to be too rough on themselves or not to be too rough on anybody else. and You end up being tolerant of all sorts of sin that the Bible confronts. And people have that understanding of grace. Let me tell you, friends, that's not what grace is. Grace is undeserved favor. That's what grace is. Grace is unmerited favor. You can't appreciate God's grace until you understand both cognitively in your mind and emotionally how unworthy you truly are to receive it. That's the only way to know grace. To really comprehend grace, does, it doesn't do any justice just to give you a definition. You have to understand what grace truly means by hearing it, knowing it, and feeling it. If you're true to yourself and you're a believer here today, we all would agree that we are sinners. But sadly in our world, what we do is we agree that we are sinners and we quickly turn around and we begin to argue that we are actually worthy persons. And that's why today, behind so many pulpits and in the preaching of many churches, they are told that the root of the problem is not really sin, it's low self-esteem or a poor self-image. It's not that you're unworthy, it's that you just, you need to improve on yourself. So one of the major tasks that many today Christian teachers teach has to do with building yourself up, seeing yourself different. That since you're a victim, you have to become unvictimized and you're actually better than what you think you are. We hear so much of that. It sells well. Because hundreds of thousands of Christian books have been written in that direction. I was raised in a Christian home, pastor's home. I was taught to believe in Christ at a very early age, and I came to know the Lord when I was five years old, a little church in West Texas, a little wooden altar. I've lived since then a relatively clean life. I haven't majored in sin and minored in righteousness. But I've always subscribed to the biblical teaching that I was a sinner. I've always understood that because as a young Christian, I had no idea, as a young boy, I had no idea how sinful I truly was until I began to grow older and recognize how incredibly sinful my flesh and I truly could be. How many times have we heard on the news when something tragic happens, a family member is interviewed and they say, I just don't see how that could happen. It's impossible. They, they couldn't have done this. There's no way. They're not a bad person. 
How many times have we heard that? Every, every time you see an interview, it's, it's always the same. You never hear somebody say, yeah, the guy was a jerk. I'm, I can't believe he didn't do it years ago. It's always, we defend them. Oh, they can't be that bad. They can't be, they can't be that, that truly, that truly uh, filled with sinfulness and wickedness. They just can't be. But the more, the older that I've grown, the more I realize how necessary grace is in, upon my life because it has taught me to fiercely draw closer to the cross and hold it with all of my might because in just one breath I could become like Paul. I am the greatest of sinners. I've had to learn that grace isn't God giving just a little boost to me to basically make me be decent help me to be a better church going guy but grace is God's mercy upon my life because he could justly send me straight to hell that comprehension of grace is missing in many people's minds and that's why salvation is so great is because salvation is the great message of grace of what we should get and what we deserve, we don't, des- we don't receive because that's what salvation is. It frees us from the punishment of what we truly deserve because of what we truly are. The message of grace is that there is hope for every sinner, for every person, no matter how great their sin is. That's good news. That's great news. My friend, I don't care where you've been in life, what you've done in life, what you've said in life, how you, where, you, where you've walked in life. There is enough grace. Grace is greater than all of your sin. Hallelujah. Whatever your children have done or your grandchildren or your, or your spouse has done, there is grace that is enough. It's a great salvation to save us from ourselves and the destruction of, of our own selves. Grace is enough. And if you will confess your sins, the cross is sufficient to completely forgive you. I'm so glad that I got to meet most of you after Jesus came into your life and not before. <laughs> I'm so thankful I know I know Vince now than when he was like he was before he came to Jesus. I'm so glad I know Hank now before he came than before he came to Jesus. I'm so glad I, I know Troy now than before he came to Jesus because I see the work that grace has done in their life. We're not what we used to be. So let's get back to the who. I got a few moments. Who made this salvation so great? Flip over to Luke chapter 19. Hold on to your seats. If you've got a seat belt, buckle up because I'm going fast now. Luke chapter 19 is an important chapter in the gospel of Luke because it ties together the very beginning parts of what Luke 24 44 says is everything must be fulfilled. It actually is the kickoff of the game, if you want to use that analogy. 
Luke chapter 19 begins with a story of a man named Zacchaeus. It's a short story. Some of you will get that after lunch. I need a drummer. I'm glad my daughter's not here. She said, Dad, that's a dad joke. Those are terrible. You know that this story, if you've been around church for any length of period of time, you know this story. I'm not going to read it because of time this morning, but I just want you to understand that the summary is that you know, this man, Zacchaeus, worked for the Roman IRS. He was notoriously short. But he heard about the power of Jesus Christ. He heard something. He heard about his message that he was teaching about repentance and salvation, about the coming of the kingdom of God. And he, honestly, Zacchaeus, in order for him to do what he did, he was not happy with his life. Let me tell you something, friends. When people get tired of being tired, sick and tired of their life going in a circle going down the drain, they will, if they have any sense about them, they will do something about it instead of get flushed. And that's what Zacchaeus did. I'm not happy with my life. I want to go see this Jesus. I want to investigate this man if he is what he says he is. And so he climbs a tree to see, you know, he presses through the crowd. Before the day was over, Jesus ended up coming to his house. Now, can you imagine Jesus showing up at your house and you have to prepare dinner for you. Actually, that would be kind of a fun thing to cook for Jesus. You know, you might prepare the meal and you set the table and you say, well, Jesus, um, I know we've got a crowd, you and the 12 disciples and me and all my friends here. um, I've got five pieces of bread and a couple pieces of chicken, but that won't be a problem, will it? Sorry, Jesus, I'm out of pop, out of wine. All I've got's water, but that shouldn't be an issue, right? You imagine doing that. Well, that's exactly how it happens. Zacchaeus has Jesus. He comes to his house. And the scripture demonstrates that Zacchaeus experienced this great salvation because he demonstrated by his actions. In the story, Zacchaeus says, hey, I will give half of my things to the poor if, there's, if there are those who need, and I will give four times as much to those that I have cheated. That wasn't a number that he just pulled out of the hat. In the law of Moses, in order to restore something that had been stolen or, or taken, the law of Moses required four times the payment Because four times the payment was when you admitted that you had wronged somebody else, that you had hurt somebody else, and that you were willing to make restitution for that. So Zacchaeus, he says, hey, I'm going to give all these things. I'm going to restore the the broken relationships that I have. I'm going to fix what I have broken. Let me tell you something. This was not an earning of salvation. This was the demonstration of what salvation does in your life. When you come to Jesus, you respond in a different way. You can't get saved as one guy who comes down to an altar and says, I got saved, and you go back to your seat the same person that you were when you walked down here. That is not salvation. That's being sorry you got caught. Salvation says I walk to an altar, I give my life to Jesus, and I walk back a different person. I have repented and changed, and I demonstrated with my fruit and actions. 
That's what salvation is. And after spending time with Jesus, he's just a changed man. You can see it in his life. James says, faith without works is dead. Confess all you want to, but if it doesn't, if the roots don't bear any fruit in your life, something's wrong with the root. So in Luke 19, verse 9 and 10, look at that scripture. Jesus says this to, to Zacchaeus. He says, today salvation has come to this house. Today salvation has come to this house. Salvation, great salvation, grace-filled salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man, look at verse 10, came to seek and to save what was lost. Jesus echoes this promise that was given back in the Old Testament 800 years before Jesus walked the earth. The prophet Isaiah said these words in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6. He says, it's, it is a small thing, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and to bring back those of Israel I have kept. He's speaking of the Messiah that's coming. He says, I will also make you this Messiah, this Christ that was going to come 800 years before Jesus. I will make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Jesus fulfilling the prophet's words about salvation coming to the entire earth. As you look through the rest of chapter 19, he follows with a parable. I'm not going to have time to go through, but then he ends up, and I want you to look at verse 28. Skip down. And after Jesus had said this, speaking about the parable of the minas, talking about salvation and about some would not accept the salvation. He went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Jesus and his disciples were in Jericho. It was in the bottom of a valley. Heading up the mountain toward Jerusalem. And as he approached Bethphage and Bethany, at the hill called the Mount of Olives, Bethany and Bethphage are two little villages. If you have been to Israel, you know that these are little tiny places just on the eastern side of the Mount of Olives. If you were standing on the Temple Mount and you were looking east, you know, the Temple Mount would be if you're looking at Jerusalem and you've seen those pictures of the gold dome, it's a mosque, the Dome of the Rock. If you're standing right there next to that and you look to the east, you'll see the Mount of Olives. It's a mountain that's covered with olive trees. Just on the, over the crest of that little mountain across that valley are two little villages, Bethany and Bethphage. And he called and he sent two of his disciples saying to them, I want you to go to the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there. Which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell them the Lord needs it. Wouldn't that be a great way to buy a car? <laughs> go to James Wood this afternoon and just say, hey, you got the keys to this. I'm going to take it home. Well, what are you doing? Well, the Lord needs it. Yeah, you're going to be calling, you're going to be needing a lawyer because you're going to be in jail. Unusual. But isn't that strange? But Jesus sometimes gives us unusual commands, doesn't he? 
He gives us unusual things that we that he wants us to do. I mean, think about Jesus telling the disciples who've been fishing all night, hey, get back in the boat and launch out into the deep. <laughs> really? He tells his disciples, I want you to go on ahead. I want you to go to a village. I want you to find there's going to be a colt, a little donkey. Matthew says the donkey was standing with its mother, so there's uh, uh, two animals there. Take the colt. It's never been ridden. Verse 32 says, those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he told them. Not surprising, is it? And as they were untying the colt, its owners asked, why are you untying the colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. And so they brought it to Jesus. Look at verse 35. It's so important. They brought it to Jesus, and they threw their cloaks on the colt, and they put Jesus on it. This colt had never been written. If you've ever, ride, if you've ever tried to ride a horse that's never been ridden, it's a rodeo. If you've ever tried to ride a donkey that's ever been ridden, I hope you have insurance. Because they won't just buck you off, they'll bite you as you're flying through the air. This colt had never been ridden, but Jesus sits on the back of it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices from all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, If they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And as he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. And he said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side, and they will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls, and they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize, here it is, the same phrase, you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. So Jesus, leaving these, coming over the crest of the hill, approaching Jerusalem to enter Jerusalem for the very first time, this would be the first, this would be Jesus' final entrance into Jerusalem as the Passion Week would begin. As Jesus is coming down, he's riding this donkey. Now, this donkey, if you see it again, you in 1 Kings chapter 1, Solomon rode a donkey into Jerusalem as he received the kingship. There's only two times that a king would ever ride a donkey into a city. It was during a time when the king was coming to be anointed or during a time of peace. Only those two times would a king ride in the ancient world into a city as a king or to become king. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, the prophet writes that your king who comes to you righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, a foal of a donkey. Everything is being fulfilled, even according to the, to the prophet Zechariah in chapter 9, verse 9. He will approach as the king bringing salvation. If you'll watch and look closely, he'll be riding on a donkey. You would think that would be easy to spot, especially in those days. Caesar didn't ride donkeys. Most people didn't ride their donkeys, especially when they had that much fanfare. And Jesus fulfilled the prophecy both ways. He was both a king that was going to be anointed. 
anointed not just for his kingship, but anointed for his death. And he would also be the king that would come in peace. Peace. And they began to say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory to God in the highest. Something I want to just show you is that Jesus was, was entering Jerusalem during the time of Passover. It was a very important day. Not just, one, not, just a, not just a Sabbath day, but it was the Sabbath and Passover all together. The historian Josephus says that there were 256,000 lambs that were slaughtered on the Passover meal. With a minimum of one lamb for every ten people. That means that there were probably over a million people in the city that normally had two or 300,000 people in it. People were everywhere. And on this day, Jesus enters into the city of Jerusalem riding on a colt, this donkey that had never been written according to Zechariah 9.9. He walks in, he, he's going into the city on a sp- particular day. That day was the 10th month of Nisan. Some of you thought that Nisan was just a car. It's a Jewish month. I want you to follow with me. Just just hear me. Give me a few moments. On the 10th day of the month of Nisan, in our time, it would have been April the 6th, 32 A.D. A precise date. It was a precise date because the Jewish calendar recorded those dates Perfectly, the 10th month of Nisan is when that Passover took place. The importance is that on that day, on the 10th day of the month of Nisan, that was when everyone who had come to Jerusalem selected a lamb that they would sacrifice for Passover. Friends, not a coincidence. On the 10th day of Nisan, that was when people selected the lamb for sacrifice. Josephus describes Passover where blood ran and filled the streets. There were so many lambs to be sacrificed. And as a matter of fact, on that day in 32 AD, the Lamb of God rode in to Jerusalem for the last time. The sacrifice, the Passover lamb. crowd acknowledged Jesus as Messiah, and that was the reason why the Pharisees tried to tell Jesus to, to get them to stop. And Jesus replied, if they, if they stop, then the stones will cry out. What Jesus was saying is he's saying, if they stop, this will be the first recorded history of a rock concert. Is that another dad joke, Sawyer? Thank you, Troy. There's a dad after my own heart. Salvation had finally come, Luke 19.9. Today, salvation has come to this house. You go back a few verses, Luke 19.9, he ties it together. Salvation has come. Jesus walks through the city as the sacrifice. And everybody sees it, except in verse 41. And I close with this. Regina, could you come? 
All of a sudden, the procession stops as they are moving. The crowds are shouting Hosanna and waving palm branches. You're the Messiah. You're the king. This fickle crowd that in a few days would be shouting, crucify him. They stop. The Bible says Jesus looks at the city of Jerusalem and he weeps. It's the second time in Scripture that describes Jesus weeping. The first time was when he was with Lazarus. The important thing to know is that the Scripture uses two different Greek words. When he talks about Jesus weeping at the tomb of Lazarus, it was an internal, it was a very personal crying. It was, a, it was eyes filled with tears, but it wasn't noticeable where Jesus wept silently. Here, as he's on the road to Jerusalem, the Greek word means to lament loudly. Jesus broke. He, he began to weep because he saw this city filled with people who were missing this great salvation and their king. It says in verse 42, look at it again with me. If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring, peace, bring you peace, if you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, there are so many people in the world people that you prayed for at the altars earlier, friends, family members, daughters, sons, husbands, wives, grandkids, they're looking for the peace and the satisfaction of joy in life. And they're no different than the people of Israel, of Jerusalem that Jesus could speak directly to and say, if you had only known the day that would bring you peace. They didn't know that salvation had come. They didn't recognize that God was visiting them. They didn't know the time. Now let me connect something for you and I close. This scripture takes us back to the backbone of biblical prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, specifically Daniel chapter 9 verse 25. It's an unusual prophecy where Daniel writes these words that God revealed to him. He said, no one understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore the re and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one. So basically what he's saying, he's saying, in the time that the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem, when Artaxerxes issued that decree to go back and rebuild, you can read about that in the book of Ezra and, and Nehemiah, from that time until the anointed one comes into Jerusalem and returns to Jerusalem, he says in verse 25, until the anointed one comes, the ruler comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. Now that sounds confusing. And it will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. Hebrew scholars, basically they say that this is a period that sevens, these weeks are seven years. So if you multiply that together, you come up with 483 years between the time that Jerusalem would be decreed to be restored to the time that the anointed Savior, the bringer of salvation, would walk through the streets of Jerusalem. Here's where I tie it together. Over a hundred years ago, a man named Sir Robert Anderson, he was a Scotland Yard detective. He retired and he became interested in 
discovering the true historical Christ. And so he wrote a book as he did, done his research and he wrote a book about this timing and the prophecies that Christ fulfilled that got him knighted. That's why he became sir. But he filled his research and math and all this kinds of things and he came up with this exact date for the time that it was decreed by Artaxerxes when Jerusalem should be inhabited. And he dated that date at March the 4th or March 14th, 445 B.C., the time that the decree came for the Jews to be able to go back and to rebuild Jerusalem. This is a historical fact. If you count 483 years forward and you use and you're smart enough like Sir Robert Anderson to use the Julian and not use the Julian calendar, but to, to use the, the Babylonian calendar, which is what Daniel was operating off of, which is not 365 days, it's 360 because it uses the lunar cycle. If you were to take into account leap years, you would come up with 173,880 days. If you add 173,880 days to March the 14th, 445 B.C., you end up with April the 6th, 32 A.D. That's a good moment for you to say, wow. Jesus says, if you had only known the time of your visitation, the biblical record is perfect. And Jesus said it best in Luke 19.10, today salvation, nine, verse 9, Today, salvation has come. My friends, listen, the greatest question that you'll ever be asked is this. Are you saved? That's the greatest question that you can ever be asked. And the greatest answer that you could ever give is, yes, I am saved. I was saved. I'm being saved. And I will be saved. If you know someone who is not, it's your job to share this story of salvation with them. Romans chapter 10 gives us this last verse of how we were saved. If we confess our sins, he is faithful. Or if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's up to us to tell people, tell this world about this great salvation. This is a great salvation. Would you bow your heads with me? Let me just pray over you today. Father, help us not forget this great salvation, how wonderful and powerful it is, how orchestrated it has been, Lord, fulfilled completely through your perfect, purposeful plan from the course of times, eternity past, Lord, until the day today, Lord, we know that our salvation, Lord God, is drawing even closer. So, Lord, I pray that, God, that you would help us to be about the master's business as we, the servants, Lord, take what we have been given and we invest it, Lord, in this world so that we might return unto you, Lord God. Souls, Lord God, to be saved. Father, I pray that you would help us to leave this place knowing how great our salvation is. And it would motivate us to, Lord, share this salvation with others. 
I thank you, Lord, for your goodness today. I thank you for your grace and for your saving love. Thanks for listening to this message. If you were blessed by this ministry, we want to encourage you to share it. And if you don't have a church home, come join us any Sunday at 1030.